We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of the Revelation, chapter 2, and we shall read from verse 8 just now. Revelation chapter 2, reading from verse 8. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works, and tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, and ye shall be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thy faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. And uh, so on, may the Lord bless Again, this reading of his word to us. Proceeding with our consideration of what John is directed, instructed, by the glorified Redeemer, the head and king of the church himself, he has something to say to his people, something of importance to say to the churches. And he directs John then to write these seven letters to seven of the churches in Asia. As we've stressed, there were certainly more than seven churches, but these seven that are mentioned, their condition, their spiritual condition as such, that they exemplify the general condition of the church itself generally. And the condition that would be found, for example, in the church in Ephesus would be found elsewhere, and the condition of the church in Smyrna would be similar to that which would be found in other congregations of the Lord's believing people. And that is why the, each of the letters concludes, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, all the churches, all the congregations of the Lord's believing people. Now, we have given some consideration thus far to the condition of the church in Ephesus. and In many respects, it was the leading church in Asia. In some respects, the mother church of others. But these churches are referred to, and we come then to consider the church in Smyrna. But remember... Every time John writes his introduction, 
to the angel of the church in a particular church, he always begins by drawing attention to some aspect of the author himself. We've already looked at the introduction to the letter to the Ephesians and to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he, and who is he, that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, and that walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So you see, the church receiving the letter in Ephesus has to understand who's sending it. And they have to appreciate these particular issues that John writes about regarding their glorified Lord, who he is, and these particular matters regarding him are of importance. Now, when we come to Smyrna, what do we read? And then to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith he, uh, who is the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. The resurrected, glorified Redeemer claiming to be the first and to be the last from eternity to eternity. The immutable, infinite, eternal God, the second person of the Godhead, God a very God while being man a very man. Now I mention this so that when we come to the actual content of any one of the letters, we must appreciate the need then to go back to what John saw prior to beginning to write. What he saw, what he witnessed regarding the glorified Lord. These letters have no significance apart from that. These letters basically have no authority. They have no relevance. They're completely unimportant unless we see the connection between what is written and he who is sending the message. And when we come to the church in Smyrna, that is necessary. But also because the messages are all different and what the glorified Christ has to say about each of the churches that is different means we are required to compare and to contrast, so that when we come to consider the church in Smyrna, well, we will compare it with the church in Ephesus. When we consider the spiritual state of the church in Smyrna, well, we'll compare it or contrast it with what the glorified Redeemer has to say to the church in Ephesus. In addition... Every one of these letters opens with these words, 
unto the angel of the church. And immediately then, upon reading these words, where do we have to go? Back to what John witnessed regarding the Redeemer, who holds the seven stars, which are the angels of the seven churches in his right hand. Now, as I said last week, he is not seen holding a sword in his right hand or a staff or a scepter, but holding these seven stars in his right hand. Now, we must understand there is a star for each of the seven churches. So had there been ten churches, there would be ten stars in his right hand. Had there been a hundred churches, there would be a hundred stars. One star or one angel or one messenger for each of the churches. So when we come to these words unto the angel of the church in Samaria, and you imagine this letter being read out, automatically they would be thinking in their minds the angel is the star in his right hand. What's the significance of that? We've already looked at it, but we may just remind ourselves that it is part of the Redeemer's own glory. It is not something these stars are not separate from him. Just as we mentioned his his robe, his uh, breast, uh, his girdle, uh, his feet, his hair, his hand has seven stars. It's part of the vision regarding him. These angels or the messengers, the ministers of the church are in his right hand. They are protected there. They are kept there. They are preserved there. But also he has supreme authority to distribute them where he will. The angel in Samaria is not an accident. The angel in the church in Ephesus is not accidentally there. He is in Ephesus because the right hand has put him there. The angel in the church in Samaria is in Samaria by the authorization of him who holds the stars in his right hand. And his glory is bound up with these messengers, these angels of the seven churches, and they reflect his glory. And that is something that I fear for many, many decades we have lost sight of in the professing church. 
we have to understand, and this is stressed in the very context, the church does not exist for these stars. These stars exist for the sake of the church. And we see in our day many calling themselves ministers of Christ, ministers of the gospel. And the church simply exists to provide them with, a, with employment, to provide them with opportunities to become somebody or to become something. Those who are the true messengers of Christ, who are in his hand, they exist for one reason, and that is to serve the golden candlesticks, to be of service, to be of Christ's service to the churches. Now we read from John's Gospel, and we may go back to it just for a moment, and you will see how important this matter is After the Savior's resurrection, he meets with the disciples and he has a particular reason for meeting with Peter. And remember what he has told Peter with the other disciples, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here he's saying to Peter, asking him first a question, verse 15 of John 21. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? That's what he's asked. He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, Thou knowest that I love thee, or I am fond of thee, as it really means here. What did Jesus say? In response, Peter says, Thou knowest that I love thee. All right, Peter, Simon Peter, feed my lambs. If you love me, Show it, demonstrate it. If you love me, pay attention to my flock and feed my lambs, my little lambs. Shepherd them, take care of them. Peter, if you love me, it won't be above you to devote your time and your energy to my little lambs, taking care of them. And then he said in verse 16 unto him the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He said unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee, repeats what he had already said and confessed. He said unto him, Feed my sheep. 
If this is true, Simon Peter, if you really do love me, if you're really so fond of me as you say, then you will feed my sheep. On the other hand, Simon Peter, if you're not genuine and your love isn't real, you'll neglect my sheep and you'll neglect my lambs and you won't feed them and you won't nourish them. And then again the third time he saith unto Simon Peter, Simon son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he saith unto him the third time, lovest thou me? Peter's grieved that he has to search his soul a third time and he has to answer a third time as though what he has previously said hasn't been very convincing. As though the Savior is wanting more from Peter. I'm not satisfied, Peter. Tell me the truth. Are you just fond of me or do you really love me? Thou knowest all things and thou knowest that I really do love thee in spite of all my feelings in spite of all my denials in spite of everything thou knowest what's in my heart that I do love thee and as though satisfied now with Peter's response what does Jesus now say Jesus saith unto him Feed my sheep. Now you might well think, well, in the second time, the first time, the Savior might say to Peter, feed my lambs. Second time, all right, feed my sheep. The more mature and more experienced. Third time, he would surely direct him to some other aspect of Christian labor and work regarding the church. Feed my sheep. Only those who love Christ have any reason to be feeding and to be caring for the flock of Christ. He requires that those stars in his hand those angels to the churches, those messengers, those ministers to the flock, they are required above everything else to love him. Because if they don't love him, they will not love his church. And if they don't love him, they will not be able to love his people with all their blemishes, there are sheep and there are lambs, immature, foolish, wayward. The flock, nevertheless, is the bride of Christ. He loved the church and he gave himself for it. 
And you remember what Paul said to the elders in the church in Ephesus in Acts 20, feed the flock of God purchased with his blood. If you love me, feed my flock. That's how I will know. If you don't love me, then you won't care for my flock. But I care for the flock. It is important to me. I died for that flock. I love that church. And I care for it. And so, I who hold these stars in my hand, because I care for it, I will put men who are my messengers to care for that particular flock. That's important. And the head of the church doesn't make mistakes. And he doesn't put square pegs into round holes. He wisely, knowingly, has the stars in his hand and he puts them where he wills with one objective, to feed his sheep. He sets them as pastors over the flock to feed them with knowledge and with understanding. Now, here's the church in Samaria unto the angel of the, of the church in Samaria, right. The one who's in my right hand, the one that I've committed responsibilities to, the one that I've placed in Samaria wisely to feed that flock in Samaria unto the angel of the church in Samaria, right. These things saith the first and the last. So the angel in the church in Samaria will know I'm not the first and I'm not the last. And he will understand his relationship. And these are one or two matters that I would want to draw out regarding these Angels, these ministers in his right hand. The very first thing they must understand and the churches must know is this. They are not the stars in his hand unless they have a living union with himself. Unconverted men, unregenerate men, cannot be stars in his right hand. These, as we said, these seven stars are part of his glory through which he displays his glory. They're part of himself, as it were. And these stars are intended to give light from himself. They're under his control. Now, the 
servants of the churches, the, the angel of the church in Smyrna. He's in the right hand. He belongs to the glorified Christ. He reflects his glory. But there is a living union between Christ and himself. And there cannot be anything otherwise. His very life, his very existence is under the control of the glorified head. And if there is not a living spiritual union between Christ and the angel of the church, he is worthless. But then in addition, there has to be some consciousness of that relationship. The angel and the church in Ephesus, if I were to come along or John were to come and say, well, why are you here? What would he say? Well, I like the people in Samaria. A nice little church in Samaria. And they're, they're quite poor and they're impoverished and they're persecuted. So uh, I, I, I just like to be here to give them a little bit of encouragement along the way and so on. Uh, who sent you here? Well, uh, I just thought I would have a bit of a change and I decided I liked the air about Samaria. And so I moved here and uh, I, I'm working here. The angel in the church in Smyrna. How come you are here? I've been put here. I've been placed here by divine authority. Perhaps the angel of the church might say, well, I never expected to meet with the conditions. I've been in the church in Ephesus. I've been in some of the other seven churches. This is the poorest church in, in, in Asia. This is the poorest of the poor, and they're afflicted, and they're troubled, and they're tried, and they've got difficulties. But the one who holds me in his right hand put me here, and he put me here to feed his sheep and to feed his lambs. And so I know that I'm protected by him. I know I'm sustained by him. I know I have my existence because of him, and I am warranted then to work and labor and toil to feed the sheep and the flock of God in Smyrna. And if he is not conscious of this relationship Well, God pity him when he faces trouble. But then, because of the very nature of his work, he's got to be dependable. And he's got to be reliable. 
and dependable and reliable spiritually. And to the angel of the church in Ephesus, can you imagine whoever the messenger might be, the postman as it were, who brings the letter from John to the church in Smyrna. And he asks around, I'm looking for the angel of the church here. I'm looking for the bishop. I'm looking for the pastor. I'm looking for the minister. I have a letter for him here. And then he's guided to meet perhaps Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop (coughs) of the church in Smyrna who was burned uh, to death because uh, he was unprepared to acknowledge Caesar as God and so on. By the way, probably Polycarp, when we compare his age, when he was before the proconsul, the Roman proconsul in 154, when he was sentenced to death to be burned, he was probably around the age of 24 to 27 when this letter would have been read out in the church in Smyrna. Now whether he was actually the angel of the church at that time, it is most, most unlikely, but he would have understood what it meant anyway. And he would have understood This letter from the head of the church, the glorified Christ, isn't for one individual. It is from the Christ of God to his flock. But God, as we pointed out last week, the glorified Christ had his own method of communicating his mind and communicating his heart to his people through the angel of the church. Now what will happen if the angel of the church in Smyrna isn't reliable? What if he doesn't understand why he's there? And he doesn't appreciate the relationship between himself and the glorified head of the church who loves this church in Smyrna and loves his people in Smyrna, if he doesn't understand that, then he may well be tempted into uttering his own wisdom, endeavoring to lead the flock according to his own reasoning, what he might think is best for them, how perhaps they might even escape tribulation and persecution. He'll apply his learning, his understanding, his supposed wisdom, and so on. He's got to be reliable. Christ is, as it were, humanly speaking, relying on him. You're the star. And I feed my flock through you. I sustain 
my people through your ministry. As I said last Lord's Day, it is a most solemn, solemn matter. For any mortal man to be put into such a position. And that's why in the past when presbyteries were going to ordain a young minister. They would meet in the early part of the day before the ordination would take place. To fast and pray. Understanding they were not to dare to lay hands suddenly on any man and that they were to commit the truth. As Paul told Timothy, the same commit thou to faithful men, reliable men, that will bring the truth to the flock, to feed them with knowledge and with understanding. But they must also be free from the opinions of men. And that tragically has been one of the problems for the church. Paul said that he would not be the slave of men. He couldn't serve Christ if he was. And I know that this has been a plague in the church for a long time now. Men afraid to speak the truth, lest their opinion, as it's considered, be not popular. Well, we better not say this, or we better not say that, for somebody down in the pew is going to take umbrage, somebody in the pew is going to be offended, and I want to be friends with everyone, so I'll keep quiet on this. And they look over the congregation and they, oh, well, I better be quiet on that matter today. She'll be upset. I'd better just be careful because he's present today. He might get very angry if I say this or if I say that. These are the angels of the churches who have a responsibility not to give their own opinions or the opinions of anyone else, but to deliver the mind of Christ. And that's what the church needs. The mind of Christ. When Paul was uh, speaking uh, to the elders in Ephesus, when he called them there in the Acts chapter 20, and he addressed them for the last time and brought before them their own personal responsibilities, he was able to say this to them in Acts chapter 20, verse 20, I kept back nothing. I kept back Nothing. Paul might be up there addressing the church in Ephesus. And there's some woman in all her finery. 
Or there's some gentleman who's very influential. And Paul comes with the word of God and he looks out over the congregation in Ephesus. Well, well, I better keep back this. I better keep back that or I am going to be in trouble. Paul said, I kept back nothing. It didn't always make me popular, but I didn't keep back anything that was profitable to you. My great concern was that you would profit. Not that I would be popular, but that you would profit. Now that's what's important. The seven stars in his right hand. Why does he put one of them in Smyrna? Why does he put one of them in Ephesus? Not to hide things from them. Not to keep back from them. But that they might profit. Spiritually. That they might profit as they would grow in grace and in their knowledge of their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He further says in verse 27 of Acts 20, I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. I haven't considered it to be something beneath me to deliver to you the whole counsel of God. Now what happens when a man delivers the counsel of God? Woe be to them that reject that counsel. That's a serious, serious matter. Whenever the man in the pulpit stands and he doesn't say, I, by the authority invested in me at my ordination as a Presbyterian minister of the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland, the most faithful body in the United Kingdom or whatever, I say to you this, that, and the other. What does that mean? That is irrelevant. I, by the authority invested in me as Christ's humble servant, I bring to you the thus saith the Lord. Do with it what you will. But I bring to you that thus saith the Lord. Today, we are in darkness spiritually because we have lost sight of the glorified Christ with the seven stars in his right hand. Now, we said that when we look at the message to the churches, we must go back to Christ himself and to the seven stars 
in his right hand, but also to compare the state of the churches. And the state of the church in Smyrna is different to the state of the church in Ephesus. Ephesus, the glorified Christ, requires of the church in Ephesus, repent. The church to repent. How many churches do we imagine in Grafton on this Lord's Day will even consider the matter of repentance? Oh, they might think, well, there's a few people, a few scoundrels running around Grafton doing things they ought not to be doing and if they're wise, they'll repent of them. But here is Christ saying to the church in Ephesus, I require you people in Ephesus to repent. Now that is different to what is required of the church in Smyrna. What's required of the church in Smyrna, verse 10 of chapter 2, the end of the verse Be thou faithful. Now what it means is this. Up until this point, you have been faithful. But you must continue faithful. There is no room for complacency. You must remain steadfast. You must continue Faithful. Now, when you look at the church in Ephesus, orthodox, disciplined, order, those who claimed to be apostles were tried and tested, as we looked at it last week, the proper Presbyterian order, men and trials before uh, the office will ever be committed to them, and so on. Now, the church in Ephesus has left its first love. It has maintained the outward order, the outward discipline, and uh, so on. But there's something happening in the heart, internally, that was left thy first love. You're still doing... Many things that are right, but you're not motivated by the love that you once had to do it. Now, what does the glorified Christ say to the church in Smyrna? Be thou faithful. Continue to be faithful unto death. Now, that is a double meaning. Faithful unto death, faithful to the point of death itself, that you will not deny or betray the truth. You'll die before you will sell Christ. You will die before you will deny the truth. That is one aspect of it. The other is, be thy faithful 
to the very end of your life. Be consistently faithful to your last breath unto death. As long as you live, be faithful. That's the requirement of the church in Samaria. Now what are these messages to these two churches thus far telling us? That the church has got to be constantly watchful, constantly guarding against any backsliding, against any compromising, and against unfaithfulness, any permitting of the corruption of the truth. I don't think that the professing church today appreciates its own danger. You turn with me for a moment to the book of Uh, the epistle that Paul writes to the Romans in the 11th chapter. We read very solemn words there in that chapter. Romans chapter 11. And here Paul is talking about the branch and the olive tree that has been cut off, namely the Jewish nation. And he's addressing the Gentile church. What does he say? Verse 20 of Romans 11. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And thou standest by faith. The Jewish church was broken off because of unbelief. And thou, the Gentile church, you're standing by faith. Alone. Be not high-minded, but fear. Be not high-minded. Don't think you're any better than the Jews were. Don't think that you're safer and more secure than the branch of the olive tree that was cut off, for you're not. You better fear. Why would you fear? Lest the very same thing happen to you. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. What did God do before he cut the branch off? He sent the prophets with their warnings. He sent chastisements. He sent judgments. He sent captivity. Why was he doing this? Because this was his covenant people. And he was warning them and warning them and warning them. And when they refused him and rejected his warnings, 
They were cut off because of unbelief. Now Paul says, you Gentiles, don't think that you're better off, you're different, and because you have been born of the Spirit of God and brought into union with Christ and you're now the visible church in the world, don't be high-minded, but you fear. Why? Lest you also be cut off. Verse 22, Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness. Note that. If thou continue. If thou continue. You remain steadfast in the truth. You continue to believe and hold to the truth. You're safe. You're secure. But if you do what they did, God will react in the same way and you'll be cut off. If you reject the warnings and you refuse the gospel, and you reject the counsel of God declared through his word, you'll be cut off too. Otherwise, thou also shalt be cut off. Now what kind of a state are we in today in the 21st century? Let's forget about limiting ourselves and confining ourselves to our little congregation here or our little branch of the church that endeavors to be faithful to the doctrines of word of God. But think of the wider church and how it is represented throughout the world and among the nations. We are told here of the church in Smyrna something of the power of Satan. The head of the church, knowing the end from the beginning, knowing the future as well as the present, says, verse 9 of Revelation 2, I know the blasphemy of them that say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of these things, those things which ye shall suffer. Behold, the devil. The devil will cast some of you into prison. Well, wouldn't it be <coughs> the Roman authorities that would put any of the believers in the church in Samaria into prison? Of course it would. But here's what the head of the church says. You may be poor, the church in Smyrna, but the devil doesn't like you. I think that's the kind of a church I would want to be in. A church that I knew the devil didn't like. And he didn't like this church in Smyrna. 
And he decided that he would put some of these saints in prison. And he does it because he hates the truth and he hates Christ and he hates his cause. But he has such tremendous power that we sometimes simply don't appreciate. In the book of the Revelation, we have various references to his power. And one of the things that we are told is, he deceives the nations. What kind of a word would that be? Now you just stop and think. Nations. Well, that's our world, isn't it? Well, we're in the nation of Australia. There's the nation of New Zealand. There's the African nations. There's all the nations. And he possesses the power to deceive the nations. Is he doing it now, do you think? You just think of it. Who in the world's estimation, who represents Christianity, who represents the church of Jesus Christ, who speaks for the universal church among the nations? One individual. The Vatican, of course, has its embassies all across the globe in all the various nations so that there is no obstacle in the way to them introducing their priests and their Jesuits and their nuns and their monks and their dogmas everywhere throughout the nations. Are the nations deceived, do you think? Who, people I hear, theologians, biblical scholars, evangelical Christians, all sorts, talking about the fact never in history was there a Jesuit as a pope before. And you see presidents and princes and they want an audience with him. They want to shake hands with him. They want to be in good terms with him. Our dictionaries, well, of of their worth being uh, identified as dictionaries, they will have their origin in universities like Oxford and Cambridge These are the authoritative dictionaries that explain the meaning of our English language. You look up an Oxford dictionary, Cambridge dictionary, Webster's dictionary, look up the word Jesuitical. It's a real, approved, 
term a word belonging to our English language. What does it mean? You know, we're, we've reached a stage where we're changing the meaning of this, the meaning of that, the meaning of the other. We're in fear of having someone some of these days demanding that certain things be removed from our dictionaries. They should not be permitted in our English language anymore. What does Jesuital mean? A dissembling person, an equivocator. That's what it actually means in our English language. How many millions in the nations of the world depend for communication, writing letters, writing books, communicating, addressing one another using the English language and one of those words in our English language is Jesuitical. And we have a Jesuit representing the biblical church in the eyes and the estimation of the nations. He speaks for the universal church. One trained to be an dissembler, an equivocator, Little wonder these ignorant, poor, ignorant critters they are. Journalists, authors, scratching their heads. Why is it Pope Francis seems to be saying one thing here and the opposite somewhere else? Why is it that he's saying this today and it's the opposite tomorrow? Well, he's a Jesuit. An equivocator. A dissembler. He doesn't tell the truth. Now you think, why? Why in the name of truth do the nations not see this? That this is no representative of the church or Christianity, or the truth. It has been one of the biggest problems. Case after case after case passing through the highest courts in the land, the United Kingdom, America, probably here as well. Judges frustrated to no end, knowing The witness before me, I can't know whether he's telling the truth or not because he has been educated and taught the doctrine, the dogma of mental reservation for the protection of the church and its reputation. He can say One part of a sentence verbally 
and the end of it quietly to himself, adding what falsifies facts, and the judge doesn't know where the truth is. And that is a fact. Those are the facts of history. Why are evangelicals saying this man is a wonderful Christian? What a wonderful evangelical. What a glorious day. Martin Luther jumped the gun. These reformers got it wrong. They just waited. The devil deceiving the nations. The nations are presently now being deceived. What do you think we ought to imagine when we read what Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 11. Are we, the Gentile professing church, going down the same road as Israel of old to be cut off and nothing but a remnant left as it was when Christ came into this world? The language, little wonder, we, we emphasize these stars have got to be men faithful to God because of the things sometimes they have to say. And what is the head of the church saying to Smyrna? There are certain centers of worship in Smyrna. They are synagogues of Satan. wonder what People would think of a minister who is asked, well, what's, what's your opinion of the churches here in Grafton? There'd be several of them meeting and congregations meeting. Well, I believe that lot are compromising. I believe that congregation is kind of semi-evangelical. I warn you, never set foot over the door of that place because it's a synagogue of Satan. People would be horrified. There's not much Christian love there. There's not much brotherly love there. Imagine the people in Samaria. We just got a letter from Christ himself telling us that in Smyrna there's a synagogue of Satan. They don't worship God there. They claim to. But it's an evil and a dangerous place. If God will pity us as a generation, we will get back to his word and we will apply his truth in every situation in order to remain faithful as the church in Smyrna was to do 
to the living head of the church. But we must leave it there. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. O most holy one, grant us an understanding of thy truth and knows the days we are living in. They are darkening week by week, month by month. Darkness covers the land. Gross darkness, the people, the nations are deceived. Lord God, of mercy upon thy church. Enable us to lay to heart thy truth, to live by it, to be conformed to it. Bless it to us, accept us now and pardon us. For Christ, the Redeemer's sake, amen.